0: Welcome to Burning Platforms, a regular podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. My name's Peter Lewis. This week, we'll be diving deep with the author of a new book, Living with AI, Campbell Wilson. But first, our roundup of the latest in tech news from around the world with regular panelists, Lizzie O'Shea from Digital Rights Watch and Guardian Australia's Josh Taylor. So, what's been going on over the last 2 or 3 months since we've been active? Um all sorts of things including the concert of the century, <laughs> Josh. What are we learning about the way that um technology manages large events through the um the way that the large event that is Taylor Swift's upcoming Australian <laughs> tour has been um has been managed?
1: Yeah, I didn't think when I started this week that I would have been doing it a- a tech dive into how Ticket works because of Taylor Swift, but that's where I've I've ended up this week. So um obviously when they had the pre-sale um on Wednesday, that there are a lot of people who were on, logging on and going, I've been here since 6 a.m. I've got six devices on my laptop. I'm like six devices in, in my in my house. I'm waiting to get in. Uh someone who just logged on at 10 o'clock in the morning is able to get a ticket for me. That makes no sense whatsoever. And so sort of went into it with um, TickTick a little bit there, or the, the parent company, TEG, And they said that um, the way that their system works, and it's one of those of what they call security measures designed to prevent bots from, from uh, nabbing all the tickets straight away is that they, in addition to doing other things in terms of trying to detect suspicious bot activity, um, although I'm not sure exactly how that works, they, once you're in the lounge, which is sort of the waiting area, that, the loading screen that you see when you're trying to get tickets, it's not really a queue. It's basically they will just pick a number at random and assign it that way. So it basically means that there's no there's no benefit to queuing up for hours and hours in advance before the, the sale opens because you just won't get any advantage. So that was the interesting thing. I, I think the I went and had a look at it. So they a couple of years ago, they started putting all their ticketing processes in, Amazon Web Services, which is, I guess, quite surprising that it took that long because you think that for something where there's a lot of like demand all, all the time for, for big big events that they would have done that sooner. But that's basically how they manage it now. So that, you know, it might seem like it's going slow, but they've actually got a lot of capacity in there and and people who aren't buying Taylor Swift tickets will still be able to get it and stuff like that. So I thought it was quite interesting just sort of the whole um ecosystem, how they how they make sure that you know this all goes somewhat smoothly now.
0: Can I wind it back a sec, though? So bot scalping, how does that work?
1: Yeah, so I think the the other way that they would have done it is that uh, bots would come in. I mean, we would have seen it in years and years past where they just come in and they have automated purchasing things and they can just get as many tickets as they want. So someone's
0: away. written a program that just yeah, keeps yeah. saying, get in line, get in line. But I thought with Ticketek, you had to be a registered user anyway. That's, bots that's part of the pressure, yeah. Well.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, but there was some concern that um, particularly uh, because, you know, as I said before, you had families who had like 10 different devices on the table all trying to log in at the same time. They were worried that that might be detected as bot behavior because it's obviously all coming from the same IP address if they're all on the one Wi-Fi network or whatever. Um, But I was told that that's not the case. So, yeah. Um, you know, people who were who were a bit concerned that they were being penalised for for trying to you know have multiple logins. Uh It doesn't seem to be the case, but uh, they they say that they do have sort of other ways of detecting
0: it, but they wouldn't really go into it. So it's kind of like a rolling lottery.
1: Yeah, basically, that's that. It works more w- way more as a lottery, and it's you got to think about it, though, like it's probably only something for like Taylor Swift or like the AFL Grand Final where we actually notice this. I, I probably remember a few years ago there was like that big scandal with Ticketek where the tickets didn- weren't selling properly and the system went down. They had to actually, like, withdraw all the tickets and then resell them again a couple of days later and and punters were not happy. So I think this the, the way they've developed it now is kind of in a you know, response to that.
0: Lizzie, are you a Taylor Swift fan or have you been lining up over the last
2: 24 hours? I- I've got nothing against her, but I, I wouldn't describe myself <laughs> as a fan, I have to say. Um, but, yeah, I think Taylor Swift is kind of an interesting character because To me what this whole episode highlights is just how critical some of these large companies are to commercial recording artists in the 21st century. You know, she's... um, obviously got a bit of a profile, like she resisted putting her songs on Spotify and she had a big dispute with them in 2014 about whether her music should be available for free there and she managed seemingly negotiate a deal with them. But she also, you know, is re-recording her first albums because the record company that owns the copyright, you know, she's kind of fundamentally opposed to that and she's painstakingly kind of retrieving her rights through this unorthodox method. And then you realise just how powerful the big recording companies are, companies like Spotify, and then um, obviously touring is now a huge component of the business of music and it's controlled again by these kind of centralised companies that that take money and then turns out in relation to tick and Tech, can't even really do their job properly or what they promised to do. And you do sort of wonder how long this can kind of carry on and, and she's someone who's got sufficient power in the marketplace to kind of throw her weight around against some of these centralized platforms and you do wonder how she might respond to these things going forward so she's an interesting um uh person through which we see some of these um debates about the business of music and tech um coming to the fore and you know she's featured a little bit in in the book that um we had Corey Doctorow and um Rebecca Giblin on talking about choke point capitalism and they they profile this industry and talk a bit about these kinds of topics, both recording masters, but also like ticket companies and event companies and stuff. And so if you're interested in that topic, there's an extensive examination of that industry there. Uh, and we did obviously speak to them about this on this podcast and that's, I think, the interesting aspect of it. She's she's a powerful player and maybe some of these companies will start to meet their match. And also fans get an insight into the business of music and how unpleasant it can be if you're a recording artist.
0: Maybe people can be too big to fail as well. Um, <laughs> Campbell, it almost feels
2: that um, what's
0: going on under the hood here is one set of AIs being deployed to respond to the impact of another's form of AIs. And then we as the consumers are watching that battle play out and hopefully we can get through the crossfire.
3: Yeah, I think we are bystanders in some sort of algorithmic battle in some sense. And it's very interesting about what you were saying just then, Lizzie, I'm thinking big music versus big tech, I think there's some some really interesting parallels there in and the the models that are coming out that are, you know, the things we're all talking about, chat GPT and these sorts of things are coming from companies that are the only ones that can afford to create those models. No one else has the resources to create those models. Um, So there's also that kind of power and control in that sector as well. And of course, music and tech is increasingly becoming intertwined. And I saw that Google has released their music generation AI recently as well while we're talking about music, which I think is um, something to be potentially um, concerned about if we like human creativity.
2: I did see that actually, Campbell. I think that um, the Grammys have indicated that that you can't be eligible for a Grammy if it's an AI generated piece of music. There has to be human authorship, which I think is an interesting clarification I would never have expected to hear, I have to say. Mm -hmm.
3: Seems like a reasonable position, doesn't it? From there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There Billy Vanilli will have no chance.
1: There was also Grimes basically saying that she'd be happy with people making AI versions of the song, as as, as, like AI versions of her song as long as it was like a 50-50 royalty split. So some Mm -hmm. people are taking different approaches to it. It's um, Yeah, I I think one of the things that sort of struck me when I read um, Corey Doctoro's and Rebecca Giblin's book was that I think our ticketing... System like for all the complaints we've seen this week about the process and everything like that is much better than the Americas. Um, it seems to be they they're locked into one company. There we have like we have TickETek and Ticketmaster, but um, there are Humanitix, there's Mosh Tix, there's like a couple of book other booking companies. They won't be the, for the big artists, but I feel like there's a bit more diversity here. And I think just a lot, in terms of like a lot of the rules, we're not seeing that level of. Um, scalping that we saw in the US where it was like tens of thousands of dollars for Taylor Swift tickets or Beyonce tickets. Um, It's just not, I mean, part of that is the the legislation's kicked in for this particular event, but it seems to be going a little bit better.
0: We better move on. Um, Lizzie, you picked out of the... um out of the treasure trove of the last um few weeks news some um work that is going on in britain facewatch a british company is being used by retailers around the country to tag the faces of people who may be petty criminals coming into their stores what's going on there
2: yeah well um We've talked a lot, um, or certainly Digital Rights Watch, uh, the organisation I'm chair of, talks a lot about the use of facial recognition in retail settings. And often we think about that as profiling customers, what their preferences might be to better tailor advertising, to better profile their customers. But the other side of this, of course, is the use for um, recovering or trying to prevent theft. Uh, And Britain really seems to be the leader in this field. The um, New York Times has profiled this company called FaceWatch and essentially, small businesses or, or chain stores are, are pay a subscription in order to access a watch list that's kind of customized. So images taken of people in the store who, you know, their security guard might have identified as committing a theft. And then it sends an alert to the store should that person enter again. And then it's up to the um, shopkeeper whether they ask that person to leave or they just keep an eye on them. And um you know, of course, in this story, they talk about an instance of uh, a false positive or a, a woman who who claims that she didn't commit a theft that got her onto the uh, original watch list, uh, but then is stopped and asked to leave from a store. And I don't know, you can you you really do empathise with the experience of somebody who might be falsely, you know, profiled as a a, a thief. Like imagine going into a supermarket and being asked to leave. Um, You know, the humiliation of it, but also the social exclusion. You can see how it becomes this form of privatised policing, essentially, um, taken on by shopkeepers. Um, They say in the absence of proper... uh, in the absence of this problem being properly addressed by by law enforcement Uh, in australia we don't have any regulation of facial recognition and commonly we think about it in context of policing because that is often where it comes to the fore in media reporting um the use of it you know there has been trials of use of facial recognition technology by australian law enforcement agencies but obviously in the u.s there's also lots of examples of it being used but this um kind of use of it by the private sector, by industry, I think is much more troubling because there's, you know, there's very little accountability over how it's used. The regulator in the UK has been scrutinising this system. Um, it it kind of made some recommendations to about how long data might be recorded or what kinds of things give rise to people being on the watch list. Um, and then essentially didn't, didn't suggest that it would be uh, prima facie unlawful. But without proper rights or people's capacity to know what is known about them by these companies, it strikes me as a pretty serious violation, not just of potentially legal standards in other places at least, if not the UK, but certainly our sense of moral standards, the idea that you should be able to go about in public life without being scrutinised in this way. Uh, I might be a bit sensitive to this, I don't know. But um, to me, I'm, I'm very concerned at the proliferation of this technology in the private sector and, you know, there has been a proposal to introduce a model law by our friends um, at the Human Technology Institute, at the University of Sydney, and, um, you know, there's an indication that the Attorney General is interested in potentially doing this. And you can see how in the absence of regulation, really some of the worst forms might come to the fore and that there's a real need for scrutiny and also a setting of standards as to how this kind of technology could be used.
0: I'm wondering if your big concern is that Madison Square Garden in the states has used <laughs> this technology to bar entry from lawyers who are suing them. Now, given your backstory, yeah. you would never get inside an Uber if this happened in Australia, would you?
2: I, uh, to be honest, I've never—I don't think I've ever really been inside an Uber. But yeah, my day <laughs> job is—I worked on a, um, I worked for a long time on a class action against Uber. But yeah, I did see that story about this woman who'd taken her kids. I think they It was to some children's entertainment show and she was isolated in the audience and removed because she was on the legal team that was suing the parent company. And I thought to myself, wow, that's a new form of humiliation for lawyers that hadn't even crossed my mind as being possible. But, yeah, that seems like a pretty vindictive use of facial recognition technology, I must say. Um, Yeah, but, like, I think the reality is the people who are likely to be kind of ostracized are the already pretty disadvantaged people. I mean, I, you know, I I obviously feel for the lawyers personally, but um I think actually the reality is it's not going to be lawyers who are mainly targeted by this um this kind of technology. And you do wonder whether we just kind of create this further ostracized, excluded class of people who now can't even go into shops without being harassed at every opportunity. And whether that's the society we like, you know, am I being too moralistic? What do you what do you guys think? What do you reckon, Josh? Uh, I,
1: I think um it's such a kind of an annoying space that we're in at the moment in terms of just like companies will try and bring this sort of stuff out and then media speculation, they, the OAIC reviews, they withdraw it and then we're sort of like pushing back against this constantly until there's actually like clarity here. It's just very frustrating. I know um, it's not facial recognition, but one of the ones that constantly gets brought up to me is just the, the weight checking on um, Woolies uh, self checkouts now, like, (laughs) um i've been told that their their systems are just hyperactive now as well in terms of just like trying to detect the wrong thing so it's getting a lot of mismatches in terms of like saying oh you're scanning a uh a banana as a as a i don't know a celery stick or something and it's not just frustrating the customers who who's like feel like they are being criminalized essentially but also like the staff who have to deal with it as well so it's just like just stuff like that i think we need probably greater recognition i think that i think it probably maybe where this will probably head is maybe sweeping laws about i guess scanning and filming people in public because i guess the other aspect to that is we, where there's so many sort of like people doing tiktok trends in public and stuff like that and filming people perfect strangers who don't want to be filmed and stuff like that and i think that that's probably you got to get the balance there between how, this, how nefarious this sort of technology can be used to criminalise people and then also just like the the invasion of people's privacy as well.
0: well, this sort of preempts a bit of the discussion with your book, but what stands out to you about um, these kind of applications of the theory and um, particularly around this notion of private policing?
3: I think, uh, well, first of all, Josh, the same thing happened to me at the supermarket two days ago as I was buying some potatoes. <laughs> um, Scanned them incorrectly, according to the little screen. Um, supervisor came over, and when she pressed the button, it played back this little video mm-hmm. of me, you know filmed from the top down. Mm-hmm. so it was not a facial recognition, not a flattering angle at all, um, of me putting the things into the the basket, and she corrected something and then sort of wandered off. And I just thought what just happened there? so she was she was called over by an algorithm that that flagged this as a potential. You know, bypassing the system. Uh, I was not identified by my face, but I paid with my credit card. You know, I mean, in theory, this could keep a record of everyone who's, who's, you know, used the system in this in this way and potentially tried to bypass it, even though I didn't. Um, I can't ask a supervisor to apologise for anything. They have nothing to apologise for. <laughs> it's the algorithm that that did it. So, so I think this this whole. Uh, surveillance and and data valence I guess is the term here it's not just facial recognition it's all the data that we're giving to, to private organizations is something to be particularly concerned about and also how are we agreeing to it I'm sure there was a small notice somewhere in the store that said that we're doing this and this is how the cameras are used but I didn't know where it was and presumably I just agreed to it by walking in and I think it is quite pernicious and I think we need to be really thinking about this and having a kind of big conversation around it, even more so than we are now.
0: It also highlights that intersection between the development of AI and the desire to regulate that and the fact of how inadequate our existing privacy laws are and the two sitting on top of each other. So, you know, over the last couple of weeks, we've had the new the, the federal minister for um, industry and who's saying we're going to have a whole paper on AI, but at the same time, we've got Um, privacy law sort of waiting to be acted on and it hasn't really been updated for 40 years. So we kind of have this little crunch moment where the technology is moving really fast and we haven't got decent foundations in place.
1: Yeah, I I think um, when I was going through that paper that Ed Husick put out, it was basically, it, it is very conscious of the fact that a lot of the Areas where AI will be applied will be in areas where existing law should cover it, and and I think it was cognizant of the fact that the Privacy Act is something that needs to be updated. But it's one of those things where I don't think that they, if they want to get stuff through in terms of much needed changes to the Privacy Act, that they can't really account for how AI is going to be used. They can, they can, I guess they can develop it in a way that it's you know technology neutral as such as it can be. But um, yeah, it's going to be hard to sort of determine what implications AI will have for privacy if we can't actually see how how it's playing out in reality yet.
2: Well, it's one of the things that occurs to me, though, is like it's one thing to say that law enforcement bodies and and stuff like that or the state has a role to play in some of these things. But, you know, we we do end up in a situation where we, we're very critical of China for having few civil liberties. And, you know, everyone looked in horror as they developed this social credit system where people got excluded from various parts of life if they didn't um, you know, behave like proper citizens. but then what we have isn't really an alternative mechanism for creating that same set of um of penalties and and inducements. you know we now just create a privatised system of excluding people from certain parts of life if they behave in a particular way. and no um no accounting for error, of course, but also no accounting for potentially the dignity of people to know what is known about them. I, I think there are solutions to this that do, Um, seem, you know, reasonably straightforward to implement without um, that are very reasonable as a starting point before it, it sets in. And it's, yeah, to my mind, privacy is one component of it, but these systems also... Require basic checks and balances. You know, it's not even that I'm concerned that they're wrong. It's that the decisions that are made for how you get caught up into a system like this um, have a different set of values because they're uh, designed for small business owners, not for society at large. But that's, I think, the other way in which we can start to have some of these discussions. Um, I mean, the other alternative, of course, is to to kind of talk about moratoriums in places that ought to be facial recognition, surveillance free. And that is um, that is something that I think has sort of fallen away in a way that's slightly inappropriate. Like I I, I, um, I agree with you, Josh, it's very easy to forget that lots of people are being filmed all the time without their um, permission by, you know, strangers and that that can be very invasive as well. And so I don't know, I'd like to talk a bit more about what it is to have a space in public life that doesn't involve surveillance by anybody, private, public or or your fellow citizens. I think that would be a, a good conversation to have. Mm.
0: The new creepy, not being seen by anyone.
2: Um, it, <laughs> it strikes me that,
0: you know, we've almost got to rename this show Burning AI rather than Burning Platforms because everything seems to be coming back to AI and we will be digging into Campbell's book in in just a few minutes. But the last the last bit of news I just wanted to sort of send out for a bit of feedback is what's being built, the Reddit revolution. So Reddit, this, um, community, very text based, um, discussion boards that is decentralized and run by different volunteers largely, but Reddit itself sort of builds advertising off the back of it and runs a pretty pretty successful business. They were concerned that ChatGTP and other um, machine learning was starting to trawl the Reddits to build on their learning. And they said, that shouldn't happen. Um, we should get some return for that. They created a proposition that they would establish um, a firewall, effectively, um, that no longer would there be open access to third parties via APIs. What they didn't see, I think, or didn't consider was the extent to which effectively open source um, developers had been enhancing the um, experience of people in Reddits by coming up with better readers, for instance, apps for people that are hearing impaired and better presentations of what was a pretty basic discussion board sort of system. The community, which has historically been really active and they've done some great protests in the past, Basically, came up with a with a with a protest against the way that these developers, who had effectively been improving their experience, was undermining, were being locked out, and their businesses effectively being being ruined. There was um, eight thousand subreddits went dark for forty eight hours, which effectively meant that they were effectively offline, so Reddit couldn't be um, generating any advertising revenue off the back of that. Um, there's also been some of the subreddits have changed themselves to be not safe for work um, ratings, which again means that there's less people on it for less of the time. Um, there was even some subreddits that were I'm not quite sure why, but flooding themselves with um, flooding their platforms with John Oliver photos, I think, in order to get John Oliver to do a bit on it. But there's been lots of different ways the protest has been flowing out. So I guess On one level, you can see why Reddit would be saying, here's a whole bunch of data, ideas, words that have been built by our community. Why should you go and crawl over it, Mr. Machine Learner? We will put up some walls. But I think there's been a series of unintended consequences, and it's plunged the company into a degree of crisis, because not only has there been a a commercial implication, but what was a very invested community is now wondering whether the whole platform is working in the interest of members or just in their own commercial interests. So how have you been watching all that, Lizzie? Because it, it it's it's a complex web, but it's a really interesting sort of clash between platform and AI.
2: Totally. Because I think Reddit depends on its moderators in order to make the site useful, interesting, engaging, attract people to it. But of course, um there is this increased pressure to monetize. That's the other kind of component in this. As we go through this period of kind of a, would you describe it as a, a tech autumn, potentially winter, where there's large numbers of layoffs, money is not as cheap, um, there's increased pressure now for companies to monetize in different ways. And for Reddit, I think that's then looking at how you monetize this huge corpus of text that can be used to train you know computers and and whatever deep learning tools you know a, a cohort of text for that use, how they can and then then monetize it. And that pressure becomes increasingly strong as other forms of monetization aren't as lucrative as they used to be, and there's less investment generally in these marketplaces. so um, yeah, it does seem like a bit of an own goal on the part of Reddit, and the stakes are pretty high, like the the CEO of Reddit's bit you know has talked about not wanting to go out in public, not being associated with the brand like you know, these moderators are very telling staff
0: people. not to wear their t-shirts in public, mm. I think was part of it, which makes me worried they're wearing uniforms anyway, because that would be a bit cultish. But
2: <laughs> yeah, well, uh, at the end of the day though, then there there's this question around what who are Reddit's customers? Is it the people who moderate their platforms, people who use their platform, or is it the advertisers who are on there? trying to get in front of those eyeballs and pay Reddit money. And um, this has been a tension for a really long time with a lot of these platforms, Who who is the ultimate uh, person they're providing a service to. And I think increasingly now that balance is being pulled towards people who pay them money because it's harder to make money otherwise for them. And, and that's a decision that I think a lot of people who are moderators on Reddit can see really clearly and are pushing back against it. What I like about it is it's like a 21st century version of a strike like withdrawing their labor has really had a massive impact on the company and so anyone who suggests that that kind of mode of thinking or analysis of our markets is is somehow outdated i think this example demonstrates otherwise
0: yeah josh the um the coverage i feel of this showdown has been a little bit um scratching heads at who is the good guy um (laughs) maybe the bigger question is who is the villain
1: well, I think Elon Musk we can probably blame for this one because I think, I think yeah. there's, a, there's a couple of things. Like he's provided cover for a lot of tech companies to do really terrible things because he's d- done much worse and it's like, well, they can get away with it. And I think the other thing is like closing off the API was something that Twitter was doing a while ago as well for the same reasons. Um, so I think that there's a lot of that, even though even though you'd, you'd be scratching your head and wondering like, why would any tech CEO look at what Elon Musk is doing at Twitter and think that that is something we need to do and replicate? Um but I think I think I guess broadly it's kind of signifying I I've seen a, a couple of articles suggesting this is sort of the end of the open internet in a lot of ways. Um I think with with AI coming in and and scraping a whole bunch of things now as well and people being worried about that, I think that we're we're and you know, we're groups are becoming less of a thing. People are engaging more in group chats that rather than open online discussion, Twitter's falling apart. I think that, you know, this this idea that um this vast open internet where everyone's talking to everyone else is going to sort of dissipate a little bit now because um, there's, you know, companies need to make money from it. And, you know, people will just go to the the different groups now rather than, rather than sort of everyone being in each other's pockets all the time. And I think that, I don't know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. I thought it was interesting that Google, uh, there was reports this week that Google said that um, when the Reddit thing happened, that it actually made search worse because a lot of people actually rely on Reddit to find, you know, particularly like, oh, I'm having this issue. Has anyone on Reddit posted about it? Um, so what Google's response to that will be will be interesting. I think that that's going to be part of what they're doing in terms of their AI response in search and things like that. But, um, yeah, I think it's the it's start of it really sort of, of like the 2010s are over, we're in a different era of the
0: internet now, and we're starting to see that play out
1: from a number of fronts now as well.
0: Campbell, it almost feels to me that if if AI needs the resource of data, this is really high quality, I don't know if it's gold or crude oil or what, but this is, this is Texas, Texas crude, isn't it? Because Reddit is communities on topics going deep into detail. Like, So why wouldn't machine learning want to access this information?
3: Machine learning researchers love this. A treasure trove for them and for their models. But um it's not surprising to me there's pushback from the Reddit community if Reddit decides that it wants to become a data broker, which essentially is what I guess they're talking about. Um, and you know how how would any monetization of of those communities be uh, of benefit to the communities themselves, I think is the question that people are asking.
0: Yeah, um and I think Reddit, this one's a little bit different because I I think they've gone down this path in response to the machine learning. I don't think there was some master plan to start charging developers for access to the platform because it had obviously been worked. They basically outsourced their R&D. But um, where it's ended up is very confrontational between the platform and its users. Anywho, why don't we move on and we will go into your book in a bit more detail. It feels like we've been previewing it right through this discussion already, Campbell. But do you want to start off by just giving us a bit of a backstory of how you came to be working in this field and how you came to sort of put this, this particular contribution into the public realm?
3: Yeah, So, so I've been working as an academic in computing for quite a while now, 20 plus years. Uh, certainly didn't start in the field of AI. When I started, I was working on something called content-based image retrieval, the idea of can you give an image to a computer system and have it retrieve all the images that are similar to that image, something that we kind of take for granted now. Um, But at that time, in the early 2000s, there wasn't an easy solution to that problem. And, And AI was not as developed as it was. So we were kind of making algorithms that would essentially reduce the images into, you know, sets of colours and sets of textures and sets of shapes, and then each image would be matched against each other image in the database to, to see which one was closest to that that set of colours or, or textures, etc. And that could only do so much in terms of real image retrieval, uh, in, in you know, in respect of being as good as humans can do that. And then in around uh, 2012, uh, Algorithms called deep learning um, became a thing. They were applied to this problem, and they blew everyone's research in that space out of the water completely, and made everything I was doing completely, <laughs> completely irrelevant. Essentially, at that time, um, and deep learning essentially uh, is a you know it's a it's a form of I guess supercharged neural networks, if you like. It's it's the way that neural networks have became have become able to do what they can do now. They've been around for a long time, but people haven't really been able to make use of them until deep learning came along. Um, And it was not just a set of new algorithms. It was a set of new algorithms with new types of hardware that really enabled that acceleration. So deep learning uh, algorithms were implemented on, on GPUs, graphic processing units, in a big way versus traditional CPUs. But anyway, there's this big acceleration around that time, so I moved into that that sort of space around that time as well. Um, and shortly after that, I uh, had a PhD student that was an AFP officer, so he was uh, working at the AFP and decided to do his PhD um, as well. A kind of crazy decision in terms of work life balance, but that's what he decided to do. So he came along and said, "I want to do a PhD. I want to keep uh, my work life." and my academic life as separate as I can. So initially, we started working together on AI problems that had nothing to do with his law enforcement work. Um, and speaking of Twitter, we actually started looking at Twitter data and using the free API <laughs> at that stage to analyse Twitter data and determine how news events spread on, on Twitter using AI. Um, it kind of drove us mental because it's very noisy data. It's you know some crazy stuff out there, and it's hard to get useful things. So Along that path, we decided, well, your work at the AFP, you work in digital forensics, there's a whole heap of problems that AI can be brought to bear on um, in that space that will be really, really interesting. Uh, His name's Janus Dellens, by the way. So, working with Janus in AI for law enforcement, we came up with this idea of doing something as a bit more of a formal collaboration. And that's where the um, research lab that we might talk about as well came about. Um, But along that um, path, Monash University Publishing had um, created this series called In the National Interest. They asked me this year, um, would you write a book on AI? I said, of course I would. haven't really written a book before. I've only written academic papers, so can't be that hard. <laughs> I know I'm talking to professional writers here, so <laughs> are you crazy is probably what you, you're thinking if you haven't written a book before. But essentially it's an essay. It's quite a short book. Um, and I guess the book is an essay whose argument is that we need to have an argument. <laughs> That's the way i describe it, that we need to have a discussion around AI because I think we're very much, and we've already been talking about it, a bit of a tipping point, I think, in terms of the way people's data is being harvested, the way algorithms are making decisions about people. So the book I really thought would be a way of getting some uh, provocations and questions out there and, and starting that discussion.
0: No, I was particularly interested in the the work you've been doing with the AFP and grappling with the notion of consent and mm. the My Pictures Matter project. You just want to sort of explain that a little bit because then I think it opens up for a bit of discussion about the, the broader project of collecting people's visual identity, which I'm sure Lizzie will want to lean into as well.
3: Yeah, sure. So one of the uh, foundation projects, I guess you'd say, of the research lab, is the use of AI to um, detect and triage online child sexual abuse material. So this is, of course, a huge uh, problem. It's a very, very disturbing crime type, and it, it affects not just, of course, the victims, of course, the families of those affected directly, but also everyone involved in investigating that crime type is is traumatised as well along the way, because uh, law enforcement uh, during their investigations do have to look at very, very large amounts of this material. They don't just have to look at this material, they need to essentially determine the severity of the material, if I can put it that way. And we would... Uh, like to think that AI and machine learning can have a role in sort of helping to not replace police in any way, but to help sort of triage at least some of that material and prioritise some of that material. And the question then is how do you build AI algorithms to recognise that sort of material? And how do you do it in an ethical um, manner? What we don't want to do is expose academic researchers to any of that material, of course, I mean, the, the the obvious answer would have been to just get an AI to look at a whole lot of that material and try and learn from it. And that's not the approach that we're taking in the lab. What we're doing is to try and use um, legal data sets, if you like, so data sets that contain the sorts of features you might see in illegal material um, and get the algorithm to determine based on those features if something is potentially illegal. So what I mean there is that we might have material that contains completely lawful adult sexual content um, and benign images of children. And both of those things in and of themselves are not necessarily illegal, Um, but if an algorithm can determine that there is a particular image or video that has both of those sorts of features in it, then perhaps that's something that should be further flagged for investigation. So, given that, the next question is how do you get that data? Um how do you get uh, let's leave aside the lawful adult sexual material? How do you get a whole lot of benignity? yeah I understand
0: <laughs> there's sites for that that you can get it. From.
3: apparently, <laughs> the internet has some of it yeah. <laughs> but interestingly, interestingly, that's an ethical issue in its in itself we, we can mm. indeed it. indeed. Um, even just compensating the the adult industry anyway, uh, so. so so that's also a thorny issue. But the, the issue of getting benign images of children, what you could do is you could just search for images of children using Google. You could just scrape the web for benign images of children, if you like. Or yourself problem there, of AI. Course, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the problem there is there's no consent in that process. And we're, we're talking about images of, of children, right? Um, can they even give consent for the use of their own image? Um, so... We thought about this for a while. Um, there are data sets out there that do contain benign images of children which we could not find mechanisms of consent for, so we were not satisfied with using those existing data sets. And then we thought, well, how do we go about this? Do we team up with schools, for instance, and ask parents and children for permission to use their, their images? We thought, well, that's that's also going to be quite tricky, and then one of our lab members, uh, Nina Lewis, um, she said something which made us all put our head in our hands and say, why did we not think of this at the start, which was, why don't you ask adults to contribute images of themselves as children to such a data set? So obviously, as an adult, we can consent for the use of our own image as a child, Um, So that's what My Pictures Matter is about. It's about asking people who are over the age of 18 to contribute images of themselves as children to us in order to help us build algorithms to detect children in illegal imagery.
2: I have, um, I think reading about that in your book I think is really interesting because I have a lot of time for that. I feel like a lot of the ways in which we talk about data do not have some cursory um, way of dealing with consent. You know, it might happen at the beginning and then that's seen as a green light to do absolutely anything with the data um, or or then not considered at all. And that to me is a big failing in our current um, legal, social, political environment because it means then well, firstly, um, companies like Clearview AI get to essentially steal people's personal information and use it for in ways that pers- people would, had never intended when sharing it in the first place and gain a competitive advantage by do so, doing so. So it's essentially a lawless environment. And then also we don't necessarily have methods or established practice for how to do it ethically or with the appropriate legal requirements. And I can see how much of, you know, a struggle it is to, to do that properly. And so I think it's a really interesting example and I was very impressed that that was your approach to data because I've not really seen many examples in Australia, at least, of that approach to uh, big data sets. And you realise wh- what kind of um, opposition or what kind of competitors you have in a marketplace who don't consider themselves beholden to either the ethics or the legality of data collection. Um, so I think that's a really interesting example and I applaud you for that. I mean, I I do have some... A bit of worry I suppose about um, working with law enforcement and how you navigate some of those questions you know one of the big concerns we have is how you do things like supply side scanning as in you know scanning images preemptively for uh, material kind of does then mean you're you're looking if you're a supplier of service or a platform whatever it may be you're then looking at people's content um, all the time proactively having to do that and you know that's a concern that you know digital rights activists have expressed mm-hmm. numerous times. We're going through a process now with the Online Safety Act where we're looking at developing codes around this kind of thing, and this is one of the issues that's come to the mm-hmm. front and center. Do we want companies to be proactively looking for this content and acting, you know, in, a, in essence, like the the triage responders who then can, you know, work with law enforcement to deal with it? And you know, we've expressed concerns about that in the past. I wondered what you thought about that, or whether, how you grapple with that kind of issue.
3: Yeah, and I think that was that was some of the argument around Apple's technology on 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 iPhones, et cetera. But yeah. in our case, um, the, the environment which in which we envision this being used is in, I guess, post-seizure environments of material, so after material has been seized. So the, the problem is um that seizures of this sort of material may be in the order of terabytes, you know. So if there, if there is reasonable um Suspicion and it's seized under warrant, then the police have to go through very, 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 very large amounts of data in order to um to see how much of it is there in a given seizure. And that, that's where we envision this this sort of technology being used. Um of course, and this this gets into I think the discussion around regulation, the the way that AI is used is probably the point at which you should regulate rather than the technology itself. So I think, and this is where I think. Sort of branching out a bit here, but I think the EU Act on AI regulation probably has that right. So, um, agree completely with you that the use of that technology in a proactive way prior to seizure of evidence is a completely different um, kettle of fish, and I think that should be considered differently. Um, we're at the moment just sort of building the technology and and the way that that's that's potentially being used is something that we would need to. Um, and certainly would want to be involved in the conversation about. One of the things
1: um, that I'd be interested to know, like when, when when you're sort of talking to the AFP about developing this sort of technology, is there an interest in sort of, I guess, being open and transparent about how it's going to be used? I think that's one of the things that I, as as a reporter who frequently writes about how the AFP uses technology, that I butt my heads in. I've got a I've got a FOI currently with the Information Commissioner because. The AFP put out a press release about this new technology that they were using, but wouldn't actually tell me what the technology was. Um, basically, saying that it, it would disclose lawful like methods of investigating crime, and therefore would make uh, crime harder to investigate. And, and I think one of the things that, that concerns me about when when companies when police are starting to use this sort of stuff is that we don't find out until like way down the track that they've been using it for quite a while, and, and it means that there's no public trust there because we don't know how they've been using it.
3: So I'm a lowly academic, <laughs> yeah, yeah. obviously. <laughs> I can't speak on behalf of the No, academic.
1: no, no, of course not. <laughs> I, can,
3: I can tell you about uh, you know, our interactions and, um, and how it's been um, and what what we have a lot of discussions with, and this is often initiated from our law enforcement colleagues' side, is the notion of the police-community partnership and the fact that good policing hinges on a good such partnership. Um, So a lot of the discussion around ethics and the the answers to the question of just because we can do something, should we do something, a lot of that discussion does start with our AFP colleagues. Uh, Again, I can't speak for the AFP, um, but we've had those sorts of positive interactions. Um, I've also been involved in um, work with, with Interpol around sort of Training, I guess, law enforcement generally as to um, the kind of criteria that you would want to put into trusting an AI system in a law enforcement context. So, you know, that's when we talk about the things that I'm sure you've discussed many times around bias in data and, you know, fairness and how do you interpret the results from a system? How do you make sure that systems are transparent and there's points of accountability, all of those sorts of things. So, I think. Um, at least the people that that I'm talking to, there is a huge sort of positive, um, I guess, set of discussions around that. Um, but it's something that uh, I think we always need to be to be mindful of. And I think um, Lizzie, you might have mentioned it before, that in some sense, law enforcement is the is the easier um, sort of area to have regulation around it because they're already so heavily regulated. But this technology is out in the private space. It's out in the open source space. I mean, you can you can download an open source facial recognition model, train it with probably 10 or 12 images of someone and, and deploy it to recognize that person. There's software that will clone people's voices with very few samples and generate completely fake what you know, this sort of stuff is out there for everybody to use with no regulation at all.
2: Yeah. Well, I think. interesting also about what you were talking about there is one of the other things that comes up in this discussion is about it's not just police that for example have to go through this content that actually AI systems rely on a huge number of people doing work of classifying content often in ways that are pretty traumatizing and aren't you know they're not paid a lot to do that you know chat GPT um comes out as though it's an alien being and people love to anthropomorphize it and I love how I don't know if that's the correct term but um I think you mentioned that a few different times in your book, which I think is a really important point, that there's a, you know, mystique around it, that there's there's some work being done by the term, if we talk about it being like magic, you know, that serves a particular purpose. But the people behind it who have to do all the classification, they're often paid very little um, and, you know, they have to often look at really traumatising content as well um, and in some instances they kind of are collaborating to withdraw their labour and demand better conditions and stuff. But I can certainly see some utility in kind of content moderation, um, you know, that task being assisted by the kind of technology you're describing. I mean, I think that does then bring up, and I don't know if you've got a view about this as well, other ways in which people might experience a mistake and then, you know, not be permitted to be able to post their content and that that's a form of exclusion as well. You know, you can think about that in terms of police accountability videos or well, there's a really interesting story about a, a man who's who was asked by the doctor to provide a photo of his child's genitals for diagnosis um, during the pandemic and then, you know, lost his entire Google account because he was flagged as being uh, potentially, you know, sharing child sex abuse material. And, you know, these kinds of like mistakes happen. So maybe you just need ways to fix that, that are easy and cheap and effective. But, you know, I can also see, I mean, I don't know if you've thought about that, but it seems to me that some of the work that you do brings to the fore the labor of a lot of people who make these systems work, who often pay a very high price for that and don't get paid well for it.
3: Yeah, absolutely agree. That that content moderation economy and you know this is something that facebook has grappled with for years as well i mean the people that have to sit and sift through uh, all the posts to facebook as well but um there was an example of open ai that paid through an outsourcing company very very low wages to i think a company in kenya to, to um to do some labeling of offensive content you know hugely psychologically damaging stuff um so i think that is that is a real concern in terms of uh, mistakes being made, I think we need to think about if the stakes are high, humans need to be in the loop, um, with these systems. Uh, we, we are the people uh, that are giving over agency to these systems in these high-stakes environments. Um, and if we're going to trust them, then where's the point of accountability? Um, where is the human in the loop? I think that's, that's really important. to Think about
1: just to tie up all the discussions as well, I think one of the reasons why the Reddit thing was the protest was so public was because the moderators there, the content moderators are not paid and, are, and they're not in the, the mm. really restrictive um, environments that that Facebook and all the other companies put their content moderators who they pay
3: into. And there yeah. was, there was an interesting thing I heard recently um, about. So, so Amazon has this service called Mechanical Turk. I don't know if you've heard about this where we're, People could be paid very small amounts of money to do very small tasks, essentially. But this could be labelling AI training content. Um, but increasingly, apparently, what's happening is that people they are paid very little, so they're actually using AI services now to label the content that they're being paid to label. Um, and uh, that'll be very interesting to see how the quality of training uh, goes down. But it's hardly unsurprising when people are paid you know this much to do to do
0: this work. So you've you've framed your book up. As a provocation, mm-hmm. what are you provoking us to think about, Campbell? So, my argument is that
3: we're all participants in the development of AI. We're, we're giving our data. We're involved in these things. We should not leave this discussion purely to the big tech companies. Um, a lot of the the tech companies have very loud voices. They get they get listened to by uh, by politicians, etc. Um, and it's relatively easy, I guess, for governments to be bamboozled by. <laughs> by by big tech and it's also big money you know um so i guess the provocation is just for people to um i guess get involved more in the conversation and there are increasing venues to do that so there is the uh the safe and responsible ai paper which i think you mentioned that it's out now for public submissions i would definitely encourage people to read it i mean it's not too much of a technical read i think it's quite um it's quite a readable paper um, and it poses a series of, I think, 14 or 15 questions that people could try and answer and, and get together as groups and answer, and I think we really just have to have that, that conversation. That's really what the provocation is, is about, I guess, people getting involved and also resisting some of the hype and some of the uh, anthropomorphizing, as you said, with the, these, these technologies, um, which implies that we don't have agency and also implies that... Uh, AI failures are not, in some sense, human failures and and they are human failures.
2: Yeah, someone who's an academic as well, I think you're, you know, when we were talking about before styles of writing, I think this is a very accessible introduction into some of these topics and also, you know, it's one of my bugbears, too often, these debates are posed as being something that you need a computer science degree to comment on and the reality is that they're very human questions you know what's you know what's our duty to the public what's you know the kind of space do we want to create for people to have discussions how you know how do you balance individual rights with majoritarian concerns like these are things that we've been debating a really long time outside of computer science you know and it's the technology is just a is one way in which some of these discussions get posed in novel ways. But yeah, and it, it occurs to me that a lot of the tech bros don't really have um answers themselves and then use all these platforms to grandstand about the the, the need to panic about some of these systems while contributing very little to pro- progressing these discussions themselves and, and very and very cagey about their own methods. Um, and so there's real utility, I think, in breaking down how AI works just so that you can see the material components to go, that go into it rather than assume it's a fully formed product that emerges from nowhere and then have an, an intervention into these discussions in, in different ways in which the system is built and work out that regulation is not just a simple um straightforward uh you know tick a box kind of exercise there's lots of ways in which it engages with our economy with our with social spaces that require a bit of consideration, so yeah, I commend the book to people to have a look for that reason I think it's a it's a a a good introduction I mean, do you think there's anything that is currently really missing, I suppose, in some of the discussions that are starting to happen that you would like to see addressed in the short term
3: uh I think so those discussions around you know, existential risk and all of these sorts of things, I think they've been hugely unhelpful because I think what they might result in is people missing the current risks, that the, what's happening right now with this technology. Um, and there's some scary stuff. Um, child sexual abuse material is being generated right now using these models. You know, this is, this is pretty scary stuff. And so I think the danger of these discussions around you know this is going to be the end of humanity where you get sort of fifty percent of the tech people saying yes it is and fifty percent saying that's ridiculous no it's not and and that getting all the coverage the danger is we miss all the really important things that are happening right now and the, and the risks that we're we're seeing right now yeah, any final thoughts josh
1: um no I think I think that's pretty much where I sit with it as well i you know, my inbox is filled with press releases about all the wonders that AI will bring and also all the dangers as well. So um, it's really, uh, I think, i think you know, the, the approach, it's, it's like the old Jurassic Park quote, you know, spending so much time thinking whether or not we could, we didn't stop to think if we should. And I think that's generally the approach you have to do with any time you sort of do we want to bring AI to this particular facet of life? Uh, and it's not like a, an overall discussion it has to be had at that, I guess, that micro level more than anything else
0: yeah and breaking it down into a series of questions and decisions actually gives power back to us because as long as it's seen as this inevitable force that is washing over it, it sort of takes away our agency. But there are existing laws, there are existing um frameworks that most organizations and innovators, need to work through and to actually drag it back into the real world rather than having the fight between whether it's going to create monsters that take over the world but how is this breaching child safety now is a much more grown-up way of approaching the discussion right anyway thanks for your time Campbell it's been terrific um thanks guys for um getting back on the burning platform and hopefully we get this going again uh, on a regular basis but um Lizzie, anything from Digital Watch? I do feel like we need to be pushing your um your privacy campaign before we um we we wind off.
2: Yeah, if you are a parent or you're an ally of parents, which is hopefully everybody, you may be interested. We've got a petition that is about parents for privacy reform, which is um advocating to the Attorney General that he act upon the various reviews and reports that are um now uh, publicly been made available about the need for privacy reform and looking at particularly the vulnerability of children but of course all of us but particularly children who don't always have the capacity to do anything about privacy violations so you know you can find that that campaign on our website with trying to take that to every minister that we can. Um, I would also say for what it's worth, if you're in Melbourne, we've got an event coming up um, at the Wheeler Centre, Mind Over Machine, which is about AI creativity, humanity and the arts at the end of July. So if you want to come and talk more about some of these topics, you'd be welcome to join us there.
0: And we'll stick both those links in the show notes. Thanks a lot, guys. Um,
2: Thanks. Thanks, Campbell. Thanks.
0: You've been listening to Burning Platforms. It was recorded in a virtual session on June 30. It's produced on Gadigal land by Jennifer Macy. Speak again in a fortnight.